All right, let us get started with our study. You can grab a sheet off there. It's, it's similar to last week's, but it's just been added to, so you want to grab it. And before we start, let me pray, and then we'll get started into our study. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to sit under your word in this setting uh, among your people and to hear now what it says about godly womanhood and what a gift godly womanhood is. And so I just pray that your spirit would help me to explain things well from your word and to help apply these things to the people here and that you would use these truths, bury them deep in our hearts that they might bear fruit and that we might walk in the ways that you have made us to walk and, and remade us to walk in Christ. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so today is the, what does it say here? It's the second message on godly womanhood. We're going to finish up godly womanhood tonight, or today, okay? Today, this morning, we'll finish up godly womanhood, and next week we're going to talk about gospel friendships. So that's the roadmap for us. So let's just quickly review the character of godly womanhood. We talked about sins to put off, three main sins to put off that tend to, uh, these, these three sins, these, it's not as though these three sins are something that men aren't called to put off, but these are three sins that tend to afflict women more than, or in a unique way, I should say, than men, and those were fear, idleness, and sins of the tongue, and we talked about that, but then we don't just talk negatively about sins to put off as a woman, but also character to cultivate. And so we first talked about cultivating a reverence for God and reverence in one's behavior. This is the fear of the Lord, having a soft heart towards His Word, not flipping about God or about spiritual things, and this will lead into a reverent behavior. A woman, a godly woman is, is not someone who makes light of spiritual things or not boisterous or loud or rude or flirtatious, but someone who has a gentle and quiet spirit, who's not quarrelsome, but who has a tender heart towards the things of God. And I want to reiterate this, and this is something that I'll have to continue to reiterate and even reiterate as we move into the, the romantic relationship section of the, the series, is guys and girls, because and, we're talking about womanhood now, so I need to talk to the, the men, and this would, the same could go for you women as we were talking about what manhood is, what you're looking for in someone else is direction and not perfection. I didn't come up with that phrase. It's been said long, long ago. Because what you want to be careful of not doing is building up some sort of ideal. And Debbie, remember Debbie even mentioned this when she was in here a few weeks ago when she introduced uh, Cliff. What you don't want to do is build up some unrealistic ideal of the kind of person that that man or that woman has to be before you will be interested in them or ask them out. We are looking for a direction of their life, not a perfection of their life. These are, uh, this is character to be cultivating. And so in terms of simplicity, you should look for, these are the, the three things or the two things that you should look for. A tender heart towards God and His Word. And that will lead towards, a, this is the second thing, a teachableness so that God's word will be the touchstone of that person's life and that will be the direction that they are moving in. They're not, they haven't arrived, they are not perfect, they are not fully mature in Christ, but that's the direction they're moving. If they have a tender heart, tender heart towards God and his word and they are therefore teachable, then 
you can continue to move in that Godward direction. And if that is the person you are interested in, then you can talk to them about spiritual things and you can bring up things and they will continue to receive those things and grow and so on. So that is what you are looking for. You're not looking for total perfection or complete maturity. That would be foolish and that would actually keep you from otherwise wonderful relationships that perhaps God has laid out for you. So don't make the mistake of looking for perfection. All right, so uh, godly womanhood is also characterized by self-control. This is something to cultivate in the area of the tongue, in your eating, in your sleep habits, in your spending habits, in your thought life, and in your feelings. And we just we looked at several scriptures in that area. And so, a number of these things pertain uniquely to women and something to be aware of in terms of your temptations. But this is something to cultivate. Self-control. Also love. For the... Uh, wife in Titus 2. This is a phileo kind of love. This is an affection, a friendship kind of affection. Affection for one's husband and affection for one's children. But also something that women, by and large, can be cultivating. This kind of affection, particularly for uh, children. Purity as well. This is something addressed in Titus 2. 5 and 1 Peter 3, 2, in your thought life, in the entertainment that you choose to take in, in your conversations, what you talk about, what you daydream about, what you read. Romans 13 tells us to make no provision for the flesh. And boy, I tell you what, you just said we have to be so careful with how entertainment shapes us. It really does shape us. And there's, it's, I'm not saying it's wrong to engage in some entertainment. Amy and I do. We try to be careful about what we watch, but... But nevertheless, we recognize if we've kind of been engaged in, in too much of a certain kind of entertainment, how that affects and shapes us and even kind of numbs our own minds and hearts. So you just have to be aware of that. Something else to cultivate, ladies, is kindness. Should men be kind? Absolutely. Love is kind. So men are called to be kind and exhibit kindness. But this is something even unique to women. That there, there's a kindness that women are to cultivate, that if, if they are not to cultivate, it seems to be more glaring than if men fail to cultivate it. Women are to be kind, to be generous, gracious, to be rich in kind deeds, as 1 Timothy 2, 9 through 10 talks about. The word is agathos. It's a rich word. It has to do with this generosity and this graciousness, this care and, and genuine care and concern about another person's good, and that's flowing out into good deeds. So you're cultivating kindness. For, for wives, a submissiveness to one's husband, happy, encouraging following of his leadership. You're not inferior to him. It's just this is the way God has designed it for order in uh, the home. You're not absolutely silent, and we're going to actually talk about that. We're going to see that in an, an example from Abigail. This does not require you being absolutely silent in regard to your husband as though he is somehow immune from sin. No, you can, you can speak to him, you can speak into his life, you can correct him and rebuke him for sinning, you can offer counsel, and so on. But at the end of the day, he is the one whom God has charged to lead you and your family in a godly direction. A gentle and quiet spirit. Paul, Peter says that this is actually precious in God's sight. And remember, we, this didn't just mean... Uh, quietness on the outside. This actually, he says, quiet spirit. This has a lot to do with this 
not being fretful or fearful, which then Peter goes on to talk about. This gentle and quiet spirit has to do with not fearing things that are frightful. You are trusting in the Lord. You are trusting in His promises so that you are not bound up with anxiety in constant inner turmoil. This is something to cultivate, this quiet spirit, because it's set upon the Lord and trusting in Him. The Proverbs 31 woman is the one who looks into the future and can laugh with true joy because she trusts in the Lord and all that she has, all that He has for her in the future, even if it requires some, some trials. Next, she's to cultivate compassion. The Proverbs woman has a heart for the suffering and the poor, and she opens her heart and her hand in kindness towards those who are suffering. So this is a heart for those who are needy, those who are suffering. Uh, Amy naturally has this kind of sensitivity. I, I really like it because I just find this to be a, an attractive quality in her, and it, 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 it will come out, it, it comes out in a lot of ways, but one of the ways it comes out is whenever we go out and she sees an older man, if we go out to eat and she sees an older man sitting by himself eating alone, she, she can't help but almost starting to cry. In fact, she will cry sometimes because she just, she's, she wonders what happened. He, she, he must have lost his wife and now he is alone and this is very sad and this is heartbreaking for her. And this is just, just as a tenderness, this is a compassion that she has uh, towards others. And this is an attractive quality and this is something to be cultivating Ladies, this compassion and this, this care for those who are hurting and suffering. All right. Oops, we skipped over diligence and skillfulness. Let me back up because this is important. So another character quality to, to be cultivating in, is diligence and skillfulness. Let's turn back to Proverbs 31. We, we've already talked about this. We talk about this in contrast to the sin to put off, which was idleness. <clears throat> And here you have a woman who is exhibiting godly femininity in her diligence, in her diligence. Maybe you have heard the caricature, kind of goes like this. Women, or men work, women stay at home. Let me say it again. Men work, women stay at home. And maybe you're thinking, well, that doesn't, I, I'm not really... That doesn't really bother me because I am currently working. A number of you are currently working, so that's not even an issue. But I want to address that kind of caricature anyways because that is a, an entirely wrong way to think about it. And here's why. Let me just give you another example. So uh, Amy today woke up. We woke up around, an alarm went off around 5.50. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Um, 5.50, because we're trying to move it back to about 5.30, because that's about the time we need to get up in order to make everything happen before school. All right. Maybe some of you are waking up that, that early. That's fine. But the point is, is that when that alarm goes off, Amy will get up and she'll get a shower. And post-shower, her work day starts at about 7 o'clock, and it doesn't stop until 9 o'clock when she gets back into bed. It doesn't stop. She's not sitting around watching movies. She's not... Um, uh, uh, on Instagram or whatever it is, she is working from 7 till 9. Talking about you, love. Good morning. And so it would be insulting for me to suggest that she doesn't work even though she is at home. I work 
in my sphere and she works in her sphere. See, work should be defined as what you do to make yourself useful to others. Or another way to define it is productive labor for the benefit of others. Work is not merely what you do in order to earn a paycheck. Okay? God has made us to work just by the way he's outfitted us with our bodies and our minds and all the various resources and the skills that he's given us. He has made us to be productive and fruitful in labor that is beneficial to others. So work or diligence is the, is the overarching category and men and women have their spheres of work. So it is an entirely wrong way of thinking that a man works and a woman uh, stays at home. A woman as Paul says, is a worker at home. He uses the same word for work as you use all the way through the New Testament, referring to all other kinds of work, whether that work is work that you do for an employer or work that you do at home. So let's disabuse ourselves of that kind of thinking. Men, you can say, work in order to lead, protect, and provide materially for the family, and the woman manages the home, which we've already talked about, is in an, in an incredibly challenging role in tasks that requires competence, diligence, industry, ingenuity, and so on. So just this woman here in Proverbs 31, she's rising while it is yet night. She's providing food for her household. She is considering a field and buying it. She's dressing herself with strength. We'll talk about in a moment. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. Amy's lamp does not go out at night until it's bedtime and then it goes out and because she's been working all day. Uh, she puts her hand to the distaff. Her hands hold the spindle. She opens her hands to the poor. She reaches out her hands to the needy. She's not afraid of snow for her household or because her household is clothed in scarlet. She's made sure of that. She's planned for the future. She's made bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates because this woman is a diligent woman. She is, she is beautifying not only her life but the life of her whole family. And it doesn't just happen. You have to work hard to make this happen. And strength and dignity are of her clothing. She lasts at the time to come. She opens her mouth in kindness. The teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household. She does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also. And so this is a character quality to cultivate. Now, a number of you are working. And so uh, you're working out currently and so much of your time is it's taken up with working and so perhaps you don't feel a, 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 a need to cultivate this quality but I would still encourage you to to do it see God has made us to work and to exercise diligence and this is something that should be a whole life thing not merely something that we section off to eight or nine or ten hours a day and then we go home and and veg out for the rest of the time rather what we should see is we we are we are regularly working throughout the day. And this is something to cultivate. And we'll actually even talk about that in more specific ways uh, when, we, when we wrap things up in the latter part of today's lesson. So something to cultivate is diligence and skillfulness. And this is something that the older women are to teach the younger women. And Paul even uses this phrase in Titus. He says, workers at home implying, therefore, that they are to be laboring, exercising diligence. And it does require cultivating skillfulness because of all the various things that you have to, have to do. Compassion, we just talked about that out of order. I apologize, but that's okay. Wisdom, wisdom. This is 
Proverbs 31 again, we saw that uh, wisdom is on her tongue. Let's see. Should have turned from there. That's my fault. Going back now to Proverbs. What is this wisdom? Well, we need to go back to Proverbs anyways to understand what wisdom is here. She opens her mouth with wisdom. The teaching of kindness is on her tongue. So she opens her mouth with wisdom. What is this wisdom? Well, in Titus, you, t- you see that the older women are to teach the younger women what is good. That's just kind of a general phrase, what is good. And Paul defines that throughout his letters. He refers often to sound doctrine. But also in the, in the case of Titus, it's what will lead to the women being able to love her husband and to love her children and to manage well her home and to remain self-controlled and pure in, in these various things. But where does that come from? Is that just coming from practical advice? No, not ultimately. The ability to rightly manage one's home and love one's children in the right way and will love one's ha- uh, uh, husband and to be pure and so on, it comes from divine wisdom. And what is wisdom? Let's look at Proverbs chapter 9. Proverbs chapter 9 tells us what wisdom is. And this is going to be a call now for women as you cultivate this godly womanhood to pursue knowledge of God, to pursue sound doctrine, to pursue knowledge of the scripture, knowledge of theology, and so on. Because this is what This is where wisdom comes from. This is what it is. Give instruction to a wise man and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man and he will increase in learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So it starts with this reverence. Remember, we talked about that reverence for God and reverence in your behavior. And knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So the word insight and the word wisdom are interchangeable in the book of Proverbs. And he's telling you what insight is. Knowledge of God. You want to be wise, ladies, in this life? You want to be wise in your work and in your home and in your relationships? You need to be cultivating and pursuing the knowledge of God. Theology isn't just for the guys to sit around and talk about. Okay, This is something for you to pursue so that you can know God and thereby have wisdom and have something good to teach the younger women and something that the older women will be teaching you. This leads to wholesome words. This leads to wise words. This leads to things that you can share with another woman because of what you have learned from God. Learning what is good from God's word will lead to right conduct. So the the character here now, the thing to cultivate is wisdom. What does wisdom enable us to do? It enables you ladies to navigate life in a godly direction that demonstrates that you know how the world really works. That's what knowledge of God enables in a woman, and in a man too, but we're talking specifically about womanhood. It enables you to navigate life because you know how the world works, because you know the God who created this world, and you, you have learned from God the, the vital knowledge of what has happened, and who we are, and so on. So this is vital. Pursuing wisdom doesn't mean you need to dive headlong into every theological mystery, but to at least have an interest in pursuing the knowledge of God, primarily from the Word and then helps from other resources. All right, Proverbs 19.14. I'm glad we turned back to the Proverbs because this next one is in Proverbs. Proverbs 19.14. Prudence. 
house and wealth are inherited from fathers. This is so good. But a prudent wife is from the Lord. So your dad is the one who provides for you an inheritance, a blessing. You know, some of you, if you maybe receive some of that now or will receive it later, that's, it's a good gift. In fact, it even says that a godly man is characterized by someone, he's, he's someone who, who gives an inheritance not only to his children, but to his children's children. And that, it had, that has to do with um, financial in, uh, inheritance. It's not only spiritual inheritance, although it would include that as well. But here's where he says something profound. But a prudent wife is from the Lord, saying that a good and godly wife is a gift given to you directly from God. A prudent wife. So what is a prudent wife? Well, this word is used throughout the Old Testament, and it refers a lot of times to prosperity and to success. That's how it's translated oftentimes in the ESV. Prosperity and success. What kind of prosperity? Prosperity in the ways of God. Success in the ways of God. This is the wise woman we just talked about previously. This is the ability to be prosperous in your walk with God. Navigating life with godly women or godly wisdom. This is a woman who's navigating life with godly wisdom. They understand the world according to divine wisdom. She is spiritually prosperous. This is success in a godly life. That's what this is. And let me just be real frank with you guys. Um, female beauty is a gift. It, it's clear. And we're talking, in terms of physical beauty, it is a gift. And we're actually going to talk about that. We're going to actually look at specific text in the Old and New Testament that talk about this very thing when we talk about romantic relationships. Female beauty is a gift. But guys, when you are married and you start having kids, the most important quality in your wife will be her godliness. I guarantee you. Her patience, her grace, her kindness, her spiritual loveliness, those things will actually accentuate her physical beauty in her eyes, if you're a godly man. If you're a godly man. I guarantee you, six months, a year, 18 months, two years into that marriage, what will matter most to you is this, her spiritual prosperity, her spiritual success, her wisdom, her godliness, her tenderness, her kindness, her grace, her patience with you, because she's going to need it, and her patience with your children. Okay? I guarantee you, come and talk to me. Come and talk to me a few years from now, and, and tell me if I, I was wrong. Okay? Next is a character quality to cultivate is modesty. This is explicit in 1 Timothy 2, 9 and 10. 1 Timothy 2, 9 and 10. Paul says, I desire, that in, then, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that the women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control. That's required because it might be challenging or you might be tempted to adorn yourself in a different way. And he goes on to say, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. And so he's not condemning the adorning of, of female beauty. You are feminine, and you should dress in a feminine way and adorn your beauty in an appropriate way. 
So he is not talking about dressing, and this is where I think some of the Puritans got it wrong, dressing in kind of a drab and, well, that's un, unfair, actually. That's a caricature. Some Puritans, a lot of the Puritans just get an, un, un, uh, an unfair rap because people don't really understand the history of the Puritans or even understand the Puritans themselves. But some of them advocated for kind of just plain kind of dressing in order to not be ostentatious and so on. Yes, you can't be ostentatious. That's what Peter is, or Paul is referring to here. And Peter's going to refer to this kind of thing later as well. But to dress in a way that I love this phrase that is undistractingly attractive, in a way that accentuates your feminine beauty, is I think totally acceptable and commendable. Okay, so Paul's not, or Peter, yeah, Paul is not here suggesting that you can't adorn yourself with, uh, with, with beauty, but rather not do it in a way that's ostentatious, trying to draw attention to yourself by the way you adorn yourself. So this is one aspect of modesty. You want to honor Christ in the way you clothe your bodies. It's not ostentatious, it's not sensual or seductive. But it is beautiful. Remember the uh, Proverbs woman in Proverbs? She made these, this, this kind of beautiful clothing for herself. She had said she had fine linens for her bed, but she also made beautiful clothing for herself. So she was adorning her beauty. It's beautiful. It's feminine. And this is good. And this is a pleasing thing, pleasing th thing in the sight of the Lord. And, and it does. It, it accentuates your feminine beauty. It also says in Proverbs 31 that she clothes herself with strength. Okay? So that's an interesting element, isn't it? Not talking, uh, it's speaking metaphorically, isn't it? Nevertheless, she does, she clothes herself with strength, meaning that she, this is, ties into her diligence, her work, her strong work ethic. And then um, he'll go on to say, beauty is vain and so on, but what matters is a woman fears the Lord. So even then, even, even we're talking about this, this external appearance, ultimately what matters is what's going on in the heart. Modesty begins in the heart, doesn't it? Just like we talked about self-control in eating. It's not so much about a body shape as it is about the heart of the matter. Modesty begins in the heart. We have to rem be reminded that clothing actually reminds us of sin. The reason we're clothed, we weren't originally clothed, were we? Now, we can't even imagine that. That's just, that's just totally foreign to us. We can't even begin to ponder what it even meant that uh, Adam and Eve were both naked and unashamed. Like, that's just beyond our imagination, right? But clothing is actually a result of sin. Now, in His grace, just think of this. In God's grace and kindness, something that was a result of sin is actually something that's turned out to adorn us and, and, and can be beautiful. And, and attractive, and so on. But nevertheless, these clothing is to remind us of sin, and therefore it was given in order to clothe, put, put clothing over ourselves to protect one another. Right? And so modesty is important for men, too. I think men can dress immodestly. This is not just a a woman thing. Men can dress immodestly. I've seen guys, you know, walking down the beach and they've got their, they've got their swimming trunks hanging way, really low and they're, I mean, it's just, they can be immodest too, right? Uh, but, but what we're doing here is because we're we had to clothe ourselves because of our sin, now clothing, we need to protect, our, protect one another with our clothing. And this is important for ladies. You want to clothe your bodies in a way that honors 
the Lord, but also accentuates your feminine beauty, which is totally legitimate. Finally, discretion. Discretion. What is this discretion? Well, let's turn over to 1 Samuel 25.30. Uh, we're just going to actually look at this whole story. I'm going to read the whole thing. Discretion. This word can be translated in various ways throughout the Old Testament. And I found this very interesting. It can be translated. And let me find my place here, and then I will tell you what it can be translated as. Okay, it can be translated as taste, behavior, discretion, or judgment in terms of discernment. So that's, that's the idea here. Discernment, the ability to discern between good and bad, right and wrong, holy and evil. She should have, a, a godly woman should have wisdom that she puts to use in her daily life, in what she chooses to love, in what she chooses to abhor. This is discretion. Wisdom in order to recognize what is good and what is evil. And then also to be able to influence others with her godliness. I really, really want for you ladies to grow in godliness and then to have a wonderful influence in this church, influence in this church and beyond. That's what I'm hoping. And here we see with Abigail, she's going to have influence and we're going to see something very remarkable at the end of this story. So let's let's get into it. So where shall we start? Um, Samuel has just died and Israel assembles together and mourns for him. He, David's still on the run because Saul is still on the throne though he's already been rejected by God. So Saul's on the throne David's on the run. He's the rightful king, but he's being pursued by Saul, and so it's kind of a mess. So he's running all over the place. And he goes down in verse 1. He, it says, David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. Okay? And um, we're going to start We're going to start right there because we were introduced to, to Nabal. So there was a man in Moan whose business was in Carmel. This man was very rich, and he had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, and he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of this man was Nabal, and his name of his wife was Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful. So you can be both, okay? Discerning and beautiful. And that's vital, because we'll talk about that when we go over to Proverbs 11:22. But But here, she's discerning and beautiful. But the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep, so David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name, and thus you shall greet him. Peace to you and peace to your house, and peace to all that you have. I hear that you have shears. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm, and they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have on hand to your servants and to your son David. When David's, son, David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David. And then they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? And who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat and that I have killed for my shears and give it to men who come from I do not know where? So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all of this. And David said 
to his men, every man strap on his sword, and every man of them strapped on his sword. I mean, it's going down now. Uh, David also strapped on his sword, and about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. So, the mall is, he's really messed up, all right? He's just, he's blown it. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master. And he railed at them. Yet the men are very good to us, and we suffer no harm. And we did not miss anything when we were in the fields, as long as, they, as, long as we went with them. They were a wall to us, both by night and by day. All the while we were with them, keeping the sheep. Now, therefore, know this and consider... What you should do, for harm is determined against our master and against all this house, and he is such a worthless man that no one can speak to him. This poor Nabal, he's, he's, he's a worthless man. He's hard-hearted. Verse 18, Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five seahs of parched grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, Go on before me, behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And as she rode on the donkey and came down under the cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down toward her, and she met them. Now David had said, Surely in vain I have guarded, have I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed that all belonged to him, and he has returned me evil for good. God so do to me and the enemies of David, and more also, if by morning I have, if I leave so much as one male of all who belonged to him. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for as his name is, so he is. Nabal is his name, which means fool or folly, and folly is with him. You don't think that parents, you can't believe that parents would do this, but as I've told you before, I knew a priest named Father Heretic. That was his name. That was his last name, Father Heretic. And then I also knew a guy who was, a, uh, who was actually a heretic. So was Father Heretic, but another heretic. <laughs> but another heretic... And his birth certificate name was Darwin Fish. So parent, you know, so you, you wonder why, well, how could a parent do that? Well, all right. And folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now let the, your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now... Let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil should, shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God, and the lives of your enemies he shall sling out from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord walk, working salvation himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. So what's going on here? N Nabal has, has been treated well by David and his soldiers, his men. 
Nabal returns good with evil and refuses to, to help David out at this point. And so David, as the rightful upcoming king, is going to let Nabal have it. Okay? Abigail recognizes a few things, and this is, this is important because she clearly has a grasp on what's happening in Israel. So she's got knowledge of what's going on in Israel. She has knowledge of who is going to be king because she knows it. She has knowledge of, of, of God's plan at that point about putting, installing David as king and so on. So she's, she's, she's a wise and discerning and smart woman. She knows what's going on in the, in the nation. She knows what's going on, but she also recognizes what real godliness will mean for David and how he cannot, as she says it a couple of times, work salvation with his own hand. That was one of the points with how God afflicted David to demonstrate that God would be the one to put him on the throne. And David was, was acting in accordance with this. Remember when, he would, when Saul was pursuing him, he would not try to kill Saul because Saul was still the Lord's anointed. And it even smote David's conscience when he snuck into a cave and clipped off a little bit of Saul's garment when he had the chance because he's like, oh, I laid my hand on the Lord's anointed. I shouldn't even have done that because to kill Saul would have been to have taken matters into my own hands rather than trusting God who promised to put me on the throne. Similar to when, remember, uh, Abraham and Sarah, they took matters into their own hands and they worked salvation with their own hands and tried to complete the promise by uh, a sinful relationship between Abraham and Hagar. Similar kind of thing here. For for David to do this would be to work salvation with his own hand, and she knows that. She's incredibly informed, wise, and intelligent, and godly woman, and she is counseling, yeah, this is crucial, she is counseling David on what to do, okay? Because she has what we call discretion. The word's even in the the text in verse 32, and David said to Abigail, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you, who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. So David is blessed and kept from wrongly shedding blood, uh, shedding blood because of what Abigail did by counseling him. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel is, who has restrained me from hurting you unless you had hurried and come to meet me, truly by morning there had been none left to Nabal so much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she brought him, and he said to her, listen to this, go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice and I have granted your petition. Wait, wait, what, what? Remember how we talked about in um, Genesis three seventeen that God rebuked Adam for listening to the voice of his wife? And I tried to make it abundantly clear that it wasn't that he was listening to his wife as though the wife can never give good counsel. But that he listened to ungodly counsel unto disobedience. The word for listen or the word for obeyed here is the exact same word as listened in Genesis 3.17. So Adam was rebuked for listening to the voice of his wife. But here, David is obeying the voice of a woman. How can, how can this be? Because she gave godly counsel. Adam wasn't rebuked because he listened to uh, the counsel of a woman, he was rebuked because he listened to ungodly counsel 
And he, instead of leading his wife in godliness, he listened to that ungodly counsel and moved them in a wrong direction. It's incredible here that, that it says that I have obeyed your voice. Why? Because she gave him good counsel. And this is the kind of influence that I would love to see in this congregation, in which I've already seen. And so this is just in, in a in great example for us guys to when uh, a, a woman has godly counsel to, to listen. Okay? Now we've talked about in terms of the structure of the church and the formal institutional leadership, that is reserved for the men. But women in these private council situations can in, have incredible amounts of godly influence, and I pray that it is so. And here is a case that the king of Israel is going to obey the voice of Abigail, do what she requests, and, and be blessed by it. And be incredibly blessed by it. His conscience will not be smote because he took matters into his own hands. Proverbs 11.22. So, Proverbs 11.22, remember what I said about what will matter most 18 months into your marriage? We're going to talk about the, the, the place of physical attraction. I think you should be physically attracted to uh, the person you're uh, going to marry. We need to talk about that and talk about what that means. But what's most important? Verse 22 like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman without discretion. There's that word again, discretion, discernment. You can have the most physically beautiful woman on planet Earth. And if she doesn't have godly discretion about what is good and what is evil, her physical beauty crumbles like sand. It becomes no longer an appealing thing, actually, anymore in the eyes of a godly man. It no longer attracts you. She starts to open her mouth, and you're like, whoa, yeah, forget it. Okay? Because it is not beautiful to have wrong moral commitments. It's not beautiful to have no understanding of spiritual things. It's ugly to be lacking wisdom. It's l ugly to be lacking good judgment. It doesn't matter how beautiful the woman is. On the other hand, when a woman is discerning, when she does have discretion, when she does have good judgment, in the eyes of a godly man, it actually accentuates and enhances her physical appearance in his eyes. And so this is something to cultivate, ladies, this discretion, this discernment. And frankly, I see so much of this already among you that it's, it's a wonderful thing. I just want to encourage you. I, I don't want you to, to hear from the pulpit or from the lectern just constant top down, this is how it should be, but actually encourage you when I see fruitfulness. And I do. I really do. I see you uh, ladies growing in, in all of these qualities. And I just say, excel still more. Okay? Excel still more. And it's a real privilege to, to be uh, part of that. All right. So what about singleness? Because a lot of this we talked about in the context of marriage. And so I just gave you five points. We're just going to go briefly through them and we'll be done. And I deliberately phrased it, except for I messed up in the first one here, I deliberately phrased it Christian single woman because your identity is first and foremost as a believer and not what your marital status is. Remember, 
in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, you're kind of, if you're not married, you're kind of locked out a lot of the redemptive blessings that God had planned because he he gave those blessings through family, primarily in the Old Covenant. In the New Covenant, that's no longer the case. You experience all of God's redemptive blessings, whether you are married or not, because all of those redemptive blessings are in Jesus Christ. You are completely a Christian. You have spiritual gifts. You are whole in Him. You will experience the same uh, new heavens and a new earth. You experience the same Holy Spirit and all those redemptive blessings, whether you're married or not. Okay, number one, except for submission to one's husband. Here's where I messed up, so let's flip it. A Christian single woman is called to cultivate these qualities of godly womanhood. These are not qualities to be pursued merely to be married, as though they are a means to a greater end. The end is God Himself right? And what he wants for us and walking in his ways. To pursue these qualities merely as a means to get married would would logically mean that once you're married, then poof, who cares, right? And it also means that you're setting up marriage as an idol because everything is driving towards that when in fact godliness is to be pursued for its own sake. So it's not pursued merely to be married, but to glorify your gracious creator and enjoy the blessing and satisfaction of true femininity. In, in this day, it is a countercultural thing to say, I love being a man, or I love being a woman. Not in a degrading or de- demeaning way to the other gender, but simply rejoice in how God has created you. There is real satisfaction for a man to live out godly masculinity. It's a real satisfaction for a woman to live out godly femininity. A Christian single woman, number two, can cultivate her desires and skill for nurturing life by caring for those God is entrusted to her, members of her own church family, siblings, relatives, orphans, widows, those in need, friends, colleagues, and so on. Number three, a Christian single woman can cultivate her desire and skill for home management by caring diligently for her place of residence, exercising hospitality with her place of residence, and managing her financial resources well in order to provide for her needs and share with those in need. Number four, a Christian single woman should diligently employ her gifts for the benefit of the church and make the most of her time by serving others, building herself up in the faith. We talked about that. Good doctrine and sound doctrine and theology, not just for the guys to banter about, but for you to absorb and to pursue on your own. Seeking to be discipled and disciple others, sharing the gospel with unbelievers, and giving yourself to prayer for the church, your family, your nation, and the world. You uh, You can deepen your knowledge of God and His Word so that you are... Uh, you have wisdom ready on your tongue for those who need it. And then finally, a Christian single woman can encourage the male leaders in her life, her father, her elders, her employer, while also encouraging other men in her life to take up the mantle of godly leadership for the glory of God and the benefit of the women around them. So, that is our study on manhood and womanhood. Well, next week we'll go into friendship. We've got five minutes for questions. Any questions about what we talked about? Yeah, Jason. Wait a second. Wait a second. We're going to see if there's any women first, and then we'll go to your question. Uh, yes, Paige. Can you see as Abigail's verbal abuse of her husband is really unsubmissive and rude? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Um, so, yeah, that's a good point. So turning back to uh, first uh, Samuel... One thing, yeah, one thing it's important to recognize, in narratives you have to be careful that you don't embrace the whole narrative as, as 
example of how to con conduct oneself. Uh, within narratives, you have to be discerning as to what might be godly example and might, what might, might not be. Uh, in, in another way of saying it, there are ways of discerning what are prescriptive and what are merely descriptive. In some narratives, they're just descriptive and not necessarily commenting on whether or not it was good. Overall, Abigail was a discerning, godly woman. Um, she recognized, now, and this is important too, because this is, this is a specific time in redemptive history. David is the upcoming king. She recognizes that. And so something remarkable is happening within Israel. Okay, And that's the context. And so she is in that way serving as a, as a guide to help David to come into his role in the appropriate way. And so clearly being given by God is a gift in that sense to, to counsel him in, the, in another direction. Um, I don't, so, but just taking your point and, and actually isolating here this section, it says, he, she, she says, let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for his name is, so he is. Nabal is, is his name, and folly is with him. And you might be thinking, boy, that doesn't sound like 1 Peter 3. And, and, and it doesn't in a way. And again, that's why we have to see this in the context of the Old Covenant and the Old Testament in the redemptive historical context that it's in. Uh, but on the other hand, too, this is kind of just objectively describing what was going on. It, it wasn't as though she's digging up some sort of horrible slander. She's, she's simply saying, this is how things are. David recognizes it. Everybody around, I mean, everybody knows what this guy is like. So I don't take this as being even really out of place or uh, out, of, out of form um, for that reason. And then also understanding it within its redemptive historical context. Because he was acting sinfully. Yeah. yeah. So, sorry, go ahead. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Even without counseling him, just went ahead and did it and rushed and, and did, of course, the right thing. But mm -hmm. Yeah, so, so in the context, she was doing the right thing. Uh, we're not told, I mean, we don't know how much she has been dealing with this guy and trying to talk to him and, and, and what interaction she had after uh, this happened. So, um, but she did not, oh yeah, she said she did not tell her husband Nabal and she wrote an Adon. Yeah, so you're right. She's not informing him, but like we've even said, and I think this is consistent with what I've been saying so far, that one thing that submissiveness does not mean is that the woman is absolutely silent because she needs to be able to speak into the life of her husband when he is acting sinfully. Right? And she needs to be able to act independently of him if he is doing something that's going to destroy the family or to do something simple. She's not, she's not obligated to, to walk with him off, to the, off the end of a pier. Right? And I think that's a similar case here. He, Nabal is clearly acting sinfully, and it's even accentuated because he's acting against the, the, the anointed, who is now the anointed king of Israel, is going to come into his uh, own, and, and that's what's shaping up. And so he is acting exceedingly sinful, which is going to mean great harm for his family and probably ultimately even Abigail too. And so she is acting in this way uh, independently of, of her husband, yet it is, it is the right thing and it actually ends up uh, delivering him and, and actually saving him and benefiting him. So yeah, it's not, it, there's, there's a little messiness there, but I do think it is consistent with what we've seen so far. So yeah, thank you for pointing that out, Paige. That's a little it can be a little jarring, but Thank you. yeah, you're welcome.
Anything else before I take Jason? Any other ladies before I take Jason's question? Yeah, Jason. Uh, in the beginning, you said uh, it, it's about direction, not perfection. Yeah. And then uh, there's like the characters to cultivate. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, for those of you who haven't heard me say this before, I think there are three areas of compatibility. Um, and it's important to recognize these, it's just mere, a mere three because otherwise you're going to have a list of 20 compatibility factors and your potential boyfriend only has 18 and you're like, sorry, we'll never be happy. Um, so forget you. And there are three, opposite gender, are they a Christian? And then the area of gender roles is really important because that's the very you know, that's the essence of your relationship in, in many ways. I mean, that's going to be where you live, right? And how you relate to one another and, and so on. So I believe that needs to be, uh, in, in, there needs to be some like-mindedness there as well. The reason why I highlight tender heart for God and His Word and a t that leads to a, a teachable spirit is because you want to be able to see in each other a willingness to yield to Scripture even when it hurts, even when it goes against how you were raised, even when it goes against how you're learning in the culture and so on, or what you're learning in the culture. So that's what you're looking for. You want to, in both guys and girls, you want to be looking for this willingness to submit to the Word of God, no matter how hard that is. And if you are finding that in either person there is just constant pushback against what Scripture is, is teaching, then that's, that should be a, 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 a sign to kind of pump the brakes and say, hey, what, what's going on here? The reason why I make these two factors the most important is because all these character qualities will grow in the person who, is, who has a tender heart towards God and a teachable spirit. They just, they will, right? So you can, you don't have to have perfection now. You just have to have that direction. So and it, when it comes specifically to the area of these, these roles, men and, men's and women's roles, be, there probably does need to be some patience because of, I mean, we're just immersed in an egalitarian culture which, which just rages against the biblical ideal. So you just have to anticipate that one or both of you have kind of absorbed that. But are you both willing to yield to what Scripture says as you, as you grow? So I think that's, that would be my, my answer. And really... Like I said, if you have these two factors, these two qualities, then all this other stuff is gonna is gonna come along. So, yeah, Chilam. In a second page, uh, point number one, uh, do you mean submission? Is it's not a quality that a single woman should come with? I, I don't get what you messed up. You said you messed up. I messed up. Uh, it shouldn't say single Christian woman. It should say Christian single woman. It's a single. It, yeah, except for submission to one's husband, a Christian single woman, rather than single Christian woman, because I didn't want uh, her identity to be that she's single, rather that she's Christian. That's where I messed up. 
The point, except for submission to one's husband, uh, the single woman doesn't have a husband to submit to. Okay, so should a girlfriend submit to the boyfriend just as a dry run before? No, no, she shouldn't. Asking for a friend. No, no, she shouldn't. No, she shouldn't. No, she shouldn't, um, because she's not her wife. Yeah, no, that's the, I, I, what I recommend is that both of you are recognizing what eventually is going to be the case. Uh, but nowhere does scripture allude to or even, does even hint at the, the, the girlfriend or fiance or whatever is to submit to that man. She's not yet his wife. But what I recommend is because you know what's what it leading to ultimately to that there uh, should be some encouragement of there should be some reflection of that. So there should be on her side some encouragement of his leadership and on his side some uh, t stepping out in leadership. And the primarily way, primary way that is happening right now in the relationship is guiding that relationship towards marriage. And in other practical ways too, planning dates and things like that and, and guiding the conversation towards a godly direction and, and making sure that you're clear and forthright about what you're thinking and the direction that you're taking the relationship and so on. But no, in terms of actual submission, that's not that's not in place yet. And God, God's word draws a very hard and fast line between marriage and not being married. And you're not married until you're married. Therefore, you're not submitting to your husband until he's your husband. So, all right, let me pray for you. And then if you have any more questions, please feel free to come and see me and we can talk. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word and just the richness of it. Help us to apply it, to understand it well and to walk in it for your glory and for our blessing. In Jesus' name, amen.